0: Podcast number 459 for September 6th, 2015. This week, the BAT, an email program that's popular in Europe, continues working to find a following in the Americas. High temperatures are a threat to your computer, so you might want to add a couple of free utilities that monitor just how hot it is in there. In short circuits, Adobe's InDesign now offers a preview feature that makes it possible to publish a document online. And if you're a Windows insider in the fast ring, you received a new version of Windows 10 this week. In spare parts, only on the website, Microsoft has published a list of Windows 10 shortcut that every user should know about. US internet users show an interest in European Union legislation that forces websites to remove information if people ask to have it removed. A Spanish company claims to have solved a World War II mystery and nighttime surveillance from the air, is surprisingly good. I first wrote about what I thought was an interesting email program that showed some promise in about 1997. It was version 1.0 of the Bat from Moldova. Since then, the Bat, the developers put an exclamation point at the end, has continued to advance. It has a substantial following in Europe. It is not well-known in the U.S. That's too bad, because it's the best email program available. The just-released version 7 has only three new big features, but one of them is a blockbuster. The BAT now supports the Exchange Web Service, or EWS, protocol. That means it can be used to connect to Microsoft Exchange Server web services. You still can't hook the BAT directly up to an exchange server, but support for EWS makes it possible for business users to connect to their company's EWS server with the BAT instead of using a browser. The other new features in version 7 are a new dialog for setting up accounts and better support for automatic configuration. That feature could help new users set up their accounts, something that is perennially a problem. It is a problem because setting up email programs involves dealing with protocols and ports. These aren't complex things, but the terminology scares people away. And now there's support for the CardDAV protocol that makes it easier to synchronize address books. Users who maintain information about contacts on various devices, and these days who doesn't do that, will appreciate the new address book synchronization feature. Card DAV technology allows syncing the BATS address book contacts with Google and iCloud contacts, as well as with other servers that support the protocol. Make a change on any card DAV device, and it'll be reflected on all the others. There are various other smaller improvements and bug fixes, too. You'll find a link to the description of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Possibly the first question you'd have here is, why should you even use an email program? After all, Google has a web service. Well, I've never liked web interfaces for email, so although I have a Gmail address, I've set up IMAP access, and I use the bat to collect mail sent to that account. If you want to learn more about how to do that, I have a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to Lifehacker. But still, why? Why? Well, three words. Ease of use. Yes, the Gmail interface is pretty. But working with messages requires an inordinate amount of clicking. An application running on the local computer seems to me a far superior way to deal with messages. If you deal with dozens or hundreds of messages every day, a webmail client will be even more cumbersome. My preference is to avoid services such as Gmail, Yahoo, AOL, and all the others by registering a domain name, for example, blind.com and TechPiter.com, and then I set up email accounts that are unique to me and aren't tied to any service provider. As long as I pay the annual registration fee for the domain name, ten to twenty bucks, and pay for the hosting service, around one hundred and fifty dollars a year for me, I have an address that will not change. Now, if you need just a domain name and some email accounts, the cost for both the domain and the accounts will be maybe around $50 a year. Not bad. If you're running a business from an AOL or Gmail or Yahoo account, your clients might wonder just how serious you are about being in business. Would you buy a car from General Motors at gmail.com? So if you're thinking about an email program, there are a few out there, why should you consider the BAT? this time I can answer in not three words, but just one. Versatility. But if you want more words, here they are. In more than 15 years of working with the bat, I have never encountered something that I wished the bat could do that it couldn't. In 2000, I wrote, if you're looking for an email program that can easily work with any number of email accounts, POP and IMAP, and be customized to work the way you want it to work, take a look at the bat. It doesn't hurt that this is the fastest email program I've ever seen or the program that takes less than 4 megabytes. Well, it's grown a bit in the intervening years. It now takes about 15 megabytes in its 32-bit version. I haven't yet installed the 64-bit version because I'm not entirely convinced that it'll be any better, and also because some of the plugins that I have aren't available in 64-bit versions, or at least they weren't. As of yesterday, I received notice that the primary plugin I use is available in a 64-bit version, so maybe I'll try it. Setup is astonishingly easy now. Here's what's involved in setting up a Gmail account for use with a BAT. I filled in my name, my Gmail address, and my Gmail password. Then I set the protocol type to automatic, meaning the BAT will try to figure out where it is and what it is. And then I clicked Finish. Later I returned to the settings panel to rename the account and to modify some of the automatic settings but none of that really was necessary and I had an account set up. The bat supports secure connections for both sending and receiving messages. I've set up my website provider's account to send and receive using TLS. The other options are start TLS and plain text. Start TLS is an extension of the plain text communication protocols. It offers a way to upgrade plain text communications to an encrypted TLS or SSL connection instead of using a separate port for encrypted communications. Most services support either Start TLS or TLS connections these days, and that's what you should be using. One of the most useful functions the VAT offers is the ability to examine incoming or outgoing messages to determine what should happen to a message. For example, you might want to consider any message that sets the text to white On a white background as spam. That's a fairly common technique used by spammers, and I have a rule that does that. Users can define any number of rules, and the rules can be simple, such as the one I've just described, or it can involve groups of conditions combined with and and or rules. Another of my favorite functions is the ability to create templates for new messages, replies, forwarded messages, and reading confirmations. The template can specify literal text, text that is inserted based on what the developers call macros, graphics, and text formatting. There are dozens of macros, and all of them are described in a comprehensive help file that has been substantially improved over the years. So the bottom line for the bat is five cats. If you send or receive email messages, you need the bat. And yes, really, it is just that simple. I have never understood why the BATS market penetration in the United States is so low. It's simply the most versatile email client available, and regardless of what email provider you use, this application will let you take control of every aspect of sending, receiving, and storing messages. You'll find additional details on the RIT Labs website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, (music) www.techbiter.com. In the northern hemisphere, we are in the midst of summer, and heat is the enemy. Heat inside your computer, particularly. The hotter your computer's CPU and disk drives are, the shorter their lifespan. Disk drives should generally operate in the 40 to 50 degree centigrade range, and the CPU, I think, should rarely exceed 60 degrees centigrade. But how do you know? Well, there are several utility programs that can keep track of temperatures for you, and we'll look at a couple of them today. Too much heat is bad news anywhere in the computer. The CPU and disk drives are two locations worth checking regularly. Somewhat like an Olympic sprinter, both get much hotter when they're called on to run faster. DiskInfo and Realtemp are both portable applications, meaning that they don't come with installers. You just unpack the zip file and run the application. DiskInfo has both 32 and 64-bit versions. When you run disk info, you'll be able to obtain more than just the temperature of the disk. Most disks today include self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology, called SMART. If so, you'll get a general health status report in addition to the temperature, and a lot of statistics. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The computer-running disk info there has a solid-state drive, C, and that doesn't display the temperature, so I selected drive D for display. SSDs have no moving parts. Their temperatures remain more or less constant. The drives with moving parts are all around 45 degrees Celsius. This is a computer with four disk drives in it. 45 degrees Celsius is about 113 degrees in Fahrenheit. Drives that run at high RPMs run warmer. Disk Info also provides information about how many service hours the drive has, in this case 13,945, its rotational speed 7,200 RPM, which logical drives are associated with the physical drive, in this case, logical drives D and I, the model number of the drive, the serial number, the size, and lots of other stuff. The utility provides charts, historical information, and some stress tests. You can download it from Crystal Dew World, and you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Realtemp monitors temperatures at the computer's CPU. Multi-core CPUs can have significantly different temperatures, and processors are particularly sensitive to workload. You'll see a couple of images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In one, the CPUs range from 46 to 59 degrees Celsius, or about 115 to 138 in Fahrenheit. Under a relatively heavy load, the CPUs heated to a range of 69 to 76 degrees Celsius. That's 156 to 169 in Fahrenheit. That's pretty warm. I become a little nervous when CPUs consistently run around 80 degrees or 176 degrees Fahrenheit, even if that is still considerably below what's referred to as the CPU's TJ Max. Yeah, not, not a clothing store. TJ Max is the temperature at which the CPU will throttle back its performance to avoid damage. The larger the distance to TJ Max, the better. TJ in this case stands for Thermal Junction. So in the case where the CPU is working relatively hard, the hottest cores are at 76 degrees and are still 29 degrees Celsius away from meltdown. Although I would be most uncomfortable at 76 degrees Celsius, the CPUs are reasonably happy in a sauna. As with disk info, Realtemp provides considerable amount of additional information and it has the ability to run some other tests, older Intel CPUs, and by that I mean any non-core CPU, such as a Pentium 4 or anything before that, and all AMD processors are not supported. If you'd like to take a look, you can download Realtemp from Tech PowerUp, and as I mentioned earlier, both of those utilities are free. <music> short circuits, one of the primary advantages of the concept behind Adobe's Creative Cloud for both clients and developers is the ability for clients to see some of the features the developers are working on and to provide feedback that the developers can use during the development. This, by the way, is one of the main concepts behind Agile development. One of the goals is to avoid large failures by creating small failures. Adobe's developers and product managers know what they're doing. For anyone to say otherwise would be to admit an utter lack of understanding about how software is developed. Even so, the product managers and the developers can make excellent use of feedback they receive from people who use the features that they're creating while development is still in progress. If you'd like to learn more about Agile development, there's a good Wikipedia article on it. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One possible use for the ability to publish online from inside InDesign might be to allow a designer's clients to see a work in progress. Currently, the system publishes to an adobe.com website, and the user receives a URL that ends with a globally unique identifier. The designer can then share that link, and it should be usable on any device, from a desktop computer with a gigantic monitor to a smartphone with a tiny screen. The option is in the same section of the file menu with the Adobe PDF presets and export. After selecting Publish Online, you'll be able to give the item a name and fill out some information about the publication. After that, the publishing process begins, and when it ends, you'll see a URL and a copy button that'll place the URL on the computer's clipboard. Then you can send the URL to anybody who should have access to it. If you'd like to see an example, I of course have one, and the link is on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The ability goes far beyond being able to just share work in process. Print documents could be repurposed for use online with a minimal amount of effort, and viewers won't need to install any kind of plug-in. If the InDesign document includes interactive features such as buttons, slideshows, animations, audio, and video, those will be included too. <music> 10 has been released, but that didn't mark the end of the preview builds. Although I maintain only the current production build on computers that I depend on for daily work use, I still have one computer that's enrolled on the program on the Fast Ring. And this week, Microsoft pushed preview build 10,532. It was a big one. I've described the rings that Microsoft uses previously. Fast Ring users are the first people outside Microsoft to see a new build and as such, they also see bugs, sometimes ugly ones that don't show up until the code encounters a particular combination of hardware and software on a user's computer. Slow Ring participants see a later version once the Fast Ring users have identified problems and Microsoft has fixed them. Build 10,532 is the second build since Windows 10 was released commercially. It includes bug fixes and a few improvements. Observant users may notice a few small changes to the context menus, too. For example, context menus are now dark, like the start menu. If you're interested in participating in the Insider program so that you can provide feedback to Microsoft, go to Settings, and then select Update and Security. There you'll want the Advanced Options section, and select Get Insider Builds. Then you can choose Fast Ring or Slow Ring. Or if you're in the Insider program and you want out, drop by the same place and you can unenroll from there too. Don't unenroll from spare parts though, only on the website. Microsoft has published a list of Windows 10 shortcuts that every user should know about. U.S. internet users are showing an interest in European Union legislation that forces websites to remove information if people ask to have it removed. A Spanish company claims to have solved a World War II mystery,